Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we'll just uh, we'll just start and see where we end up. Uh, you know, I, I was sharing with uh, some of the chaver yesterday. I, I had an experience every once in a while. Something happens, and then I go, "Wow, that's a uh, that's sort of all of life right there." Um, and uh, I, I I was making a. a Cajun turkey soup, and um, from from a, a recollection of a recipe from about uh, 15 years ago, <laughs> and um, so it was, it was fairly inexact. But here's what I had: I had a turkey carcass with like a lot of turkey still left on it, and I had like lots and lots of stuff in the refrigerator. And I haven't made soup in I don't know how long, but um, anyway, I put this turkey carcass in the in the in the pot. And then I, I just started uh, adding all, all of the things. Um, I put in carrots and onion and potatoes and garlic and zucchini and um, okra and tomato. And um, I put in Worcestershire sauce and um, red pepper and black pepper and cilantro. And I'm sure I'm leaving out ingredients, but I put in like a lot of, put in more than even what I told you. Then I boiled it up and, you know, and I was tasting it and, you know, then I adjusted it a little bit, you know, just trying to get it right. And then uh, day two or three, I, I realized I had a lot of um, rice in the refrigerator. So I put the rice in and I stirred it up and I thought, okay, this is really, but I, it wasn't great, I have to be honest. <laughs> and... and Every time I'm tasting it, and I was about on my fifth bowl at this point, every time I'm tasting it, I'm trying to put my finger on what, there's one particular taste of this turkey soup that I'm not digging, you know? And all of a sudden it hit me, it's turkey. <laughs> I didn't like the turkey part of the turkey soup. And... Um, and that's when it hit me, wow, that's kind of like life, you know, because I was going through, you know, a lot of us, we were like, you know, something's, something's like off. We think something's off and we go through the different aspects of our life, the different ingredients, if you will, of our life. Okay, my, my social life, my business life, my, my spiritual life, I'm going through these relationships and these relationships. And what we don't nail down in our mind properly is that the part that's bothering us about life is the life part of life, you know? So, <laughs> life comes with its inherent problems and challenges. And that is, that's the life part of life. And that's inescapable. That's just inescapable. And, and that's not, that, 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 that doesn't have to be depressing. It's not supposed to be depressing. It's reality. And therefore, it's so important that our stance be a very um, active uh, stance, meaning, meaning that if we anticipate challenges, then as they come up, we don't receive them as, I another thing wrong. I another, now it's this. Ah, why me? It, rather, we understand that this is part of the part of the soup, so to speak, part of the fabric of life, and then we're expecting them. So when they come, if there's a problem, of course there's a problem. Of course there's a problem. This is life. I'm going to be fixing problems, 
until 120. That's, you know, I don't know if you know this, it's a, it's a famous example given on, on, on this topic. The Golden Gate Bridge, which if you've never seen it, it, it really is a physically beautiful sight. There's something incredibly majestic about it. The Golden Gate Bridge, they paint it, and as soon as they finish painting it, they have to start painting it again. Because whatever the reason, the, the weather or the, the nature of the um, building material is such that it starts rusting almost immediately. So as soon as they finish painting it, they start painting it again. You know, to give you an example in the Torah where this really sort of like um, crystallized in my mind um, a while back was in terms of, in terms of um, Avraham Avinu's um, uh, test with Lech Lecha. He's leaving um, Haran and, you know, it's, it's so important because who's, who did lo- God love more than Avraham? I mean, maybe you could come up with a short list, but certainly he loved Avraham as much as he loved anyone ever in existence. And Abraham passes the test with flying colors. He answers the call to, to leave everything behind and, and to go to, um, to Israel. And not only that, not only that, but he had already left Urkazdim. Keep in mind, he had already left Urkazdim to get to Haran to begin with. So he had already done on his own, so to speak, a Lech Lecha experience already. So now he gets to Haran. And now Hashem tells him, officially, go to Israel. And so he passes the test with flying colors. And you think, okay, so now his life is going to be easy. Now his life is going to be easy. And what happens? There's a famine. His wife gets kidnapped. It's not a picnic. So you think, well, he must have done something wrong. Because if he did everything right, then his life would be easy. But that's exactly why I'm giving you this example. Because he didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right. And yet, nonetheless, he was greeted with these challenges. In our own lives, we make the mistake, and it's very natural for us to think in in these terms. We make the mistake of thinking, the reason why... I'm being challenged. The reason why I have obstacles still left to overcome in my life, why everything isn't going easily for me, the reason why is because I'm doing X wrong and Y wrong, and that may be part of the picture, by the way. I don't want to discount that. That, that, that probably is a reality. However, one must keep in mind that even if they're doing everything right, the challenges are still going to come. But that's part of our work in this world. By overcoming these challenges, we're literally fixing the world. That is the, the sewing process. If you imagine sewing a garment, making, making something, that's, that's how the sewing is done, by overcoming challenges. And then we're making something beautiful. So, so I learned something um, this week uh, uh, from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, one of the um, great disciples of the Vilna Gon. And um, he, he said something about the nature of, uh, the nature of learning Torah uh, 
and how even if you don't learn Torah for the sake of heaven, how you'll come to learn Torah for the sake of heaven. That Torah is this this awesome this this awesome light that that penetrates a person to the deepest aspects of their being, such that even if they do it wrong, if they stay in it, they'll come to do it right. Which is this amazing, amazing thing. And he gives an example in terms of the dynamics of a mikvah and the dynamics of a river. In the Torah, where it talks about um, the, the, uh, the nature, it talks about tumas mes, the, the impurity that comes from contact with the dead, especially uh, when one ends into, enters into an ohel, into a tent, it's an it's a extremely complicated Torah subject. But afterwards, it talks about the, the purity of immersion. And, and so, from a river, we learn out that it has very similar, but you'll see in one moment, a very interesting, uh, a very interesting difference from the standard laws of a mikvah. So, let me just get to the point. Everyone knows that a mikvah has 40 saw of water. That's a liquid measure. It must have that amount of water. Okay? And then you completely immerse in the mikvah, and then you come out, and your status is changed. You go from a state of impurity to a state of ritual purity. Now, it's actually very interesting. The um, Avne Nezer, the son-in-law of the Kutzka Rebbe, said something interesting. He said that, why is it that a person's status gets changed? It's because, or why are you reborn, so to speak, because you have this rebirth process. In fact, someone who's um, becoming a Jew, um, the, one of the necessary things is that they immerse in a mikvah, and when they come out of the mikvah, they're now Jewish. So there's this rebirth aspect of going to the mikvah. And of course, uh, it's for men and women. It's a different type of avoda, heavenly service, for men um, than it is for women. But, but it's good for a man to go for sure, Erev Shabbos and Erev Yantif, if you can. The, the people who are really serious about it go, go every day. But at least to go um, Erev Shabbos. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a good thing to do. Um, and uh, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories on that. I, I had just gotten married and it was, uh, I was spending... Um, uh, uh, Sukkis in Borough Park. My wife was, uh, is from Borough Park. And, um, and we were staying at this, uh, hotel. And I asked the clerk, you know, because Yentuf was about to start and I wanted to go to the mikvah. And so I asked the, asked the clerk, uh, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, Borough Park is a very, very religious neighborhood. Extremely religious. Like, 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 you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of shuls all over the place. So um, I, I asked the, the clerk, I said, can you tell me where the closest mikveh is? And he said, the closest mikveh on this block? <laughs> so, so anyway, um, so, so the Avne Nazar says that what happens is, the, the reason why you have this change of status is because when you, uh, humans can't live underwater. It's an area where 
So when you immerse yourself in this place that humans can't inhabit, you make a hefsik, which is a halachic break. A hefsik means, like for instance, if I hold up an apple and I say, and then I put down the apple and I go to the movies, and then I come home and I pick up the apple, I can't take a bite out of that apple. I have to say another bracha on it, because I've made an interruption between the blessing and the act itself. So, for instance, for those of you who ever wanted to know why Friday nights or Shabbos, whatever it is, or any time really, why you wash your hands and then no one talks until you eat the challah, it's because you don't want to make a hefsek. You don't want to make this halachic interruption, this, um, this breaking of your concentration between the blessing and the thing itself. So since everyone eats the bread together, you wait for everyone to wash. So no one talks, so you don't want to make an interruption. So now listen to this. Since humans can't exist underwater, when you immerse yourself underwater, you make a break, a hefsik, in your own humanity. In your ability to continue to exist. So therefore, when you emerge out of the water, you're in a new reality, because you made a break in the continuum of your existence. And now you emerge a new person. Or you emerge in a state of purity if you were in a state of impurity, whatever it is. Um, so, what's one of the awesome, awesome things, we talk about it every Yom Kippur. The B'nai Yisachar says, you know, and you'll just uh, follow, follow these uh, numbers for a moment. If you do, you'll hear something good. So we said there's 40 saw. That's a liquid measure. Forty of these liquid measures make up a mikvah. Now just concentrate for one moment. Each saw is made out of 20, 24 login. I think that's how you say it. That's also a liquid measure. So 24 equals one saw, and you have 40 saw, right? So the B'nai Yisachar says, look at this. From Rosh Chodesh Elul, right, which is the beginning of the Tshuva time, to Yom Kippur is 40 days, like 40 saw in a mikvah, right? And each day is composed of 24 hours, just like each saw is composed of 24 logan, right? So there's an exact parallel between the period from Rosh Chodesh Elul to Yom Kippur as the dimensions of a mikvah, which means that when you're in Yom Kippur, it's one big time-space mikvah. And so just like you go through Yom Kippur, and it's a purification process, it's like you're in the mikvah. And then when you leave Yom Kippur, you leave purified, just like when you emerge from a mikvah, you leave purified. It's this amazing parallel. So now, let's get a little bit further into it. So, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver points out something very interesting. He says, so you need 40 saw, we see that already in, in a lot of different ways, you need this amount of water, and it's pure rainwater, and as Reb Shlomo put it one time, you know, it washes your soul. The mikvah washes your soul. And he said, you know, if, if I didn't, if the Torah didn't tell me that I could wash my soul, how would I know how to wash my soul? So, so, so we're lucky to have holy things like the mikvah. 
Now, here's the question. You ready? A river, a river is also a mikvah. But now, when you think of the rikvah, uh, a, 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 a river, don't, don't think of like the Mississippi right now for a moment. Think of a very small kind of like, you know, running stream in a forest for a moment, okay? Now, imagine that that stream isn't all that deep, okay? So, so let's say if you were to go in, if you were to actually go into this mikvah, and you were to, you'd have to sort of like crouch down a little bit to be completely covered. In other words, what I'm trying to do is give you a mental image of a river where at that place there isn't, is not, 40 saw of water. At that place where you're immersing, in the river. The question is, is that a kosher mikvah or not? Because it doesn't have 40 saw of water in it. Does everyone hear the question? The answer is, it is a kosher mikvah, even though at that place where you're immersing, there isn't 40 saw of water. The reason is because it's mitztarif. It, it combines with the flow of the river coming, and there you get your 40 saw of water. So even though in that place there isn't 40 saw, nonetheless, you're putting yourself in this flow where there is 40 saw. Okay, so now, what have we said zillions of times? We've said that water is Torah. Wherever you see them talk about water in the Torah, it always means Torah itself. So now, we talked about even when you learn not for the sake of heaven, you'll come to learn for the sake of heaven. Listen to Rav, how Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver puts all of this together. He says, at that moment where you're immersing, there isn't 40 saw. Nonetheless, it purifies. That's like a person who comes to learn Torah not for the sake of heaven. So how does it purify? Because you're linking, you're linking yourself to this divine flow where it's going to come. It will come because it gets into you. It gets into you. There's something about, there's something about truth. There's something about truth, you know? See, you know, one of the, one of the big weapons that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, uses on us to try to kill us, it's, um, can you imagine, I mean, this is a really horrific image. I'm sorry for sharing it with you, but I, I want to try to communicate. Can you imagine a person being choked to death with their own tefillin straps? I, I'm sorry for the gruesomeness of that image. But, but that's one of the things the Sahara tries to do to us. And I'll tell you what I mean by that exactly. It uses our level, or it uses a person's level of sincerity and earnestness against themselves and uses a person's own earnestness and sensitivity to try to kill them. Let me make the point more clearly. A person says, you know something? Let's say it's a woman. Uh, well, Shabbos is coming, and um, I could light candles. You know, the sun's not down yet. This is now the time to light. But 
I know I'm going to hop into a car and go to the movies tonight. And so I'm not going to light candles because that would be hypocritical. That would be hypocritical. So therefore, I'm not going to do a mitzvah because that makes me a hypocrite because I'm not keeping Shabbos 100% right now. So, in other words, the person is trying to be very sincere. They can light the candles. There's not anything stopping them. But it's their own sense of earnestness that the Yetzirah is leveraging against them to get them to not do anything. So a person gets all tangled up in their own sincerity because they don't want to be a hypocrite in their path towards spiritual truth. The last thing that they want to do is to be a hypocrite. Look how devious the Sahara is. It stops a person from doing a mitzvah. I, I, I heard this with my own ears one time. I went to Morning Minion one time and a person shows up for Morning Minion on a Sunday morning. Okay, so, and he's not putting on tefillin. Okay, so the person says, someone asks, you know, because look, he doesn't have to, it's not like someone's stopping him in the street and saying, hey, you know, put down your shopping bags and put on tefillin. This guy came on his own to shul Sunday morning. You know, I mean, let's face it, the guy's obviously positively motivated, right? So, so someone says, why aren't you putting on tefillin? He says, I heard this with my own ears. These hands that ate lobster last night, I'm going to put tefillin on them? Yes! <laughs> yes! But do you hear? I mean, that's coming from a, a place, but, but put yourself in his shoes for a moment. I'm not, chas v'shalom, God forbid, making fun of him for a moment. That's not my intention at all. The opposite. Listen to the place of painful sincerity that that person is coming from. He's coming from a place of intense sincerity. No, it's not stupidity. It's the work of the Sahara. We have to shine a light. We, we shine a light on the darkness and then we, we can see through its tricks and through its lies and then we can be successful against it. But it's like hand-to-hand combat. It's hand-to-hand combat because it's an angel. We have to understand that the Sahara is an angel and it knows you better than you know yourself. And so every day it comes up with new strategies to try to mess you up. And it never runs out. It will come up with new strategies until, until the day we die, right? It says, you know, it says in Perkei Avos, don't even trust yourself. Don't trust your own religiousness until the last day. Because there's a story about a Kain Gadol who was like in his 80s and he went off the derrick. I mean, it's like, this is the power of the Eight Sahara. So anyway, so how can we put this in a, in a very clear, concise way? The Sahara tells us this great lie called all or nothing. If you're not doing it all, then do nothing. Because that's the most honest way to be. You want to be sincere? You want to pursue truth? Then do nothing. <laughs> Right? Ah, let me pull the knife out of my back. He just, how did you do that? 
If you want to be sincere and you want to be pure, do nothing. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And yet I know it's completely wrong. I know it's completely wrong. How did he do it again? How did it make so much sense again? So sometimes you can't do everything. Right? So you break down a mitzvah. I've heard, I've heard of people, I know this from personal experience, who are on their road to keeping kosher. You eat a non-kosher hamburger, you wait before you have dairy. So you say, wait a second, it's non-kosher meat. I have to wait? Yeah, you wait. And then it will, it will come. It'll come. So then you eat a little less non-kosher, a little less non-kosher, and then all of a sudden you're waiting a little bit longer. And you're putting these things in, in place. And these are real, real things. These are real, real things. And it's not hypocrisy. It's not hypocrisy. Can you, can you, can you imagine a doctor says to you, you know something? You have to take, um, you have to take this medication. So you have to take um, five teaspoons of this medicine a day to save your life. So imagine, for whatever reason, I can't, it's an expensive medicine. I can't afford it at this period in my life. I can't take five teaspoons a day, but I can take two teaspoons a day. And then the doctor says, hypocrite! <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm a hypocrite? I'm not a hypocrite, I'm broke! <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. And it will help. It will help. It will help. Because, like Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver says, when you go into the mikveh, even if there isn't 40 saw at that place, it combines with the flow that's coming down. And it combines to make 40. And so one who doesn't do something necessarily for the sake of heaven or can't do something completely, will come to do it. Now let me go into a little bit more detail. 40 is a very exalted number. We know that 40 is also the amount of time that Moshe Rabbeinu was on Mount Sinai getting the Torah. So let's say you go into this mikveh that doesn't quite have 40 measures of water. Right? And remember, water equals Torah. So you're not quite in this place of completion vis-a-vis the Torah. Nonetheless, you are linking yourself to this flow from the 40 of Mount Sinai. So that flow is coming down. And it says in Pirkei Avos that the voice from Mount Sinai never stopped. And that if we had the ears to hear it, we'd still be able to hear it today. And as Reb Shlomo said one time, in the name of Rebbe Nachman, do you know why we can't hear it? Because anger makes the loudest sound in the world. And it jams up all of the airways. It jams it all up. That's why we can't hear. I'll tell you something absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Listen to this. This is from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Talks about the Garden of Eden. Because you know that it says that there was a river coming out of the Garden of Eden and it broke into four different streams that that waters the world. Now listen to this. The Lubavitcher Rebbe points out the fact that don't think that the, um, 
that the Garden of Eden was some kind of um, spiritual idea that it wasn't an actual place. It was definitely, I'm quoting now, this is from, uh, from the new Chumash that came out. Um, page 21 here. It says, It was definitely an actual garden that existed somewhere in the physical world. The reason we cannot see it is because, as will be seen later, the physical nature of the world, including that of our physical bodies and senses, became coarser after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge. The Garden of Eden, in contrast, retained its original purity. It is therefore invisible to our eyes. Isn't that awesome? The idea that we, we fell, so to speak, spiritually, we fell, and therefore we can't see the world with the same clarity as we once did. The Garden of Eden still exists, but it didn't fall. It didn't fall. And so we don't have the eyes to see that level of spiritual purity anymore. Just like we can't see angels with our eyes. You know? But there it is. It's still there. In fact, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, when the third base of Migdash comes, when Mashiach comes, we'll see that the third base of Migdash was always there. We just never had the eyes to see it. So, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. We have to rebuild it. But you know, there are two opinions how the, the third base of Migdash is going to come. Either we're going to rebuild it with our own hands, or it's going to come down complete from Shemayim. So, you know, maybe it depends on us. Maybe it depends on how worthy we are in terms of how that, that end game, in terms of human history, plays out. Um, but we are building it with our mitzvahs. Every time you do a mitzvah, you're shaping it and you're building it. So, so we'll have to see how, uh, how it actually comes down into this world. So, so understand then. Understand... The nature of purity. You know, I heard a guy tell a story, and again, I heard this with my own ears. And um, someone I know, she really just one of the sweetest, purest guys, you know. Really, I have great uh, admiration for him. I heard him telling someone else that, uh, that he really couldn't make it through a Shabbos service. It was just too long for him. So in the middle of the Torah reading, he would go out and smoke a cigarette, right, on Shabbos, right? So we're not supposed to smoke on Shabbos. So I thought to myself, when I heard that, seeing who he is now, which is really this, as they say, Ehrlich guy, this really very pure guy, I imagined myself, you know, however months before it was, sitting in shul, and this guy coming in, no doubt reeking of cigarettes, Right? You know, meaning that he had just smoked, that he had gone out in the middle of the Torah reading to smoke, and now here he is. I would have thought to myself, probably, I wouldn't have said anything, but I would have thought, what a chutzpah. You know? And yet we see everything so backwards. What, what should a person think when they see someone like that? They should have said, 
how awesome it is that this guy is coming to shul at all. You know, like Reb Shlomo says about the, the, the wicked son at the Seder. He said, you know, he didn't have to come to the Seder. How awesome is it that he even came at all? You know? Um, Rabbi Glass spoke yesterday at the Happy Minion, and he said a Torah in the name of Reb Shlomo, which I hadn't heard, and I was so happy that, that he was able to say it. He was, he was saying that um, Yosef HaTzadik sent old wine, Yayin Yashon, according to the Gomorrah and Megillah, Rashi brings it, to Yaakov Avinu. And he said the gematria of Yain Yashin is 430, which is the length of the exile that the Jews were going to have to experience until they were taken out by Moshe Rabbeinu, and of course Hashem. But he said on, a, on another level, he says that in Perke Avos, it says that there's, that you can't judge a book by its cover, and that you have such a thing as something that looks on the outside, something like kind of decrepit, really. But on the inside, it's really good. It's good wine. It's old wine, which means good wine. But on the outside, the barrel looks kind of crummy. You know? And he said, or Reb Shlomo said, it's such a classic Reb Shlomo Torah, really, that that Yosef HaTzadik was, 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 was telling his father something very important. He said, you know something? You're going to come to Egypt and I'm not going to look like you. And I'm not going to look like the other brothers. I'm going to look like an Egyptian. And you know, I mean, at least in the movies, I don't know if, uh, if this is for real, but I mean, even if you look at the hieroglyphics, the way the Egyptian royalty look in the hieroglyphics, the men have eye shadow, an eyeliner, you know? Can you imagine, like, Yosef, like, I don't know if that's what it was, but just imagine for a moment, Yosef with that, you know, intense black around his eyes with the little kind of trailing off lines, and, and you know, who knows what kind of clothing he's wearing, right? You know, what's, what's really, what struck me in reading it uh, this year, when, when Yosef gets elevated to be Paro's number two, it says, Paro, one of the first things that happens, ay, it makes me shiver just thinking about it. One of the first things that happens, and the way it's presented, it's presented as a covet, as, a, as an honor, as like a good thing. It says, Paro put a gold chain around his neck. Right? But think about it, you know. Have you ever heard the expression, they use it today, golden handcuffs? where someone gets into a certain place in their life or a certain job and they're miserable, but they can't leave. They call those golden handcuffs, you know? Um, Paro. Paro, the first thing he does when he promotes him, he puts a gold chain around his neck, you know? Not a piece of jewelry. Not a piece of jewelry. So anyway, Yosef, not to say that, not to even imply God forbid that Yosef was tied to the luxury of his position. That's not what I'm trying to say. Just to have an image of Yosef at this moment. Yosef is dressed in Egyptian clothes and he's saying to his father, you know, when you see me, don't judge me from the outside. 
don't judge me based on what I look like, because on the inside, I'm still the Yosef that you knew and who you taught Torah to. Um, I just, um, I just say, just say one one more thing, just on a personal level in my own life. Um, when you see people, you never know what's going on with people. Um, it's, uh, you know, I heard a good story. Rabbi Krohn said it over in the name of Rabbi Israel Salanter. He said he was walking, Rabbi Israel Salanter was walking down the street and he sees a, a Jew walking down the street and is, is looking down and miserable, you know. So he says to him, you know, how are you? And he, the guy goes, uh. And he says, well, tell me, you know, what, what's going on? And he says, he says, it's Elul. I'm doing tshuva. And he says back to him, because you're doing tshuva, I have to be miserable? <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's not the, that's, anyway, so just in terms of what's going on with people, I tell you, didn't share the story with you in a while. I heard Reb Shlomo say one time he was outside of the a restaurant. It's since closed. It was a kosher dairy restaurant on 72nd Street called Famous. And uh, Isaac Bushevis Singer used to go there every single morning for breakfast. Apparently he'd sit in the same spot and order the same thing. Um, and uh, anyway, I was there a number of times. It was a great place, really like an old world place. And Rav Shlomo used to... I was there with Rav Shlomo one time. Anyway, Rav Shlomo was with this other person and uh, they were standing outside the restaurant and they see uh, a woman walking down the street. And I guess they both knew her and the person Rav Shlomo was with looks at her and says, you look terrible. Now anyone who knows anything about Rav Shlomo, that's like, you know, <laughs> how could you ever speak to another person like that? And certainly greet another person like that. I mean, it's like... So, so, so the opposite of who he was, and and Reb Shlomo stepped in at that point. He goes, "No, no, no! You look great! You look great!" And he gives her a lot of covet and a lot of strength and a lot of life, and says beautiful things to her. And then she continues walking on. And sometime later, Reb Shlomo saw her again, and she says, "You know, I, I have a mazel tov." And he says, really? What, 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 what happened? She says, well, you know, do you remember when you saw me that day? She said, I was walking um, to someone's house. Uh, someone had just proposed marriage to me. And I was thinking, you know, I don't need that person's charity. I'm not going to accept his, 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 his marriage invitation. And, uh, and then when you said... All those things to me. I started thinking, as I continued walking, you know what, maybe I'm not so bad. And maybe he wants to marry me because he really sees these good things in me and loves me. And so I accepted his marriage invitation. So say mazel tov. So, so what, what, got, what, what struck me about that 
is that here's a person just walking down the street, right? Looks like everyone else walking down the street. But that person was absolutely at a crossroads in their life at that moment. And you know what? Most of the people walking down the street, on either on some big level or maybe on a smaller level, are also at a crossroads in their life. Every single day, really, every single moment, we're at a crossroads in our life. Should we push a little bit harder? Should we just try, just, just let me just take a safer off the bookshelf. Let me just try to learn a little bit. Or just, I know that there's someone who needs something. And maybe I can just try to, a little bit harder to just motivate myself to do a chesed. Or maybe I'm about to give up on myself, on life, on God, whatever it is. Everyone is at a crossroads. You're never not at a crossroads. You don't even know when you... Reb Shlomo was absolutely a master at greeting people. You have no concept of if you just smile at someone and say, Hi, how are you? You look great. Just practice. Stand alone in your room and say it 20 times. Hi, how are you? You look great. (laughs) Say it so that it just comes out of your mouth naturally. You know? You know, someone will leave, believe me, over the course of your life, there will be people who will leave your presence and go, I look great, I'm so glad. I thought I looked terrible today. I certainly feel terrible. At least I look great. All right, well, you know what? I'm already feeling a little bit better. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, instead of making some sort of self-destructive decision, they make a less self-destructive decision. And then your mom is changing the entire world. These are the rivers that flow from the Garden of Eden. These are the rivers that flow from Har Sinai. This is the 40, this is the purity that's flowing. They never stop flowing. You can direct that flow to people. You can direct it to yourself. You can direct it to the world. Okay, have a great week. <laughs>